Let's begin in Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to, I'm going to start reading in verse 5, so if you want to follow along, I'll begin there. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, it is our simple prayer just that you would bless the reading of your word. And and as we seek um, to know your word better, that we might love you more. Would you. uh, Would you help us listen, Lord, would you help? um, Would you help us speak truths about your word, Lord? We just want to invite you to come and and have your way open up our minds and open up our hearts uh, that we would that we would love to glorify you and worship you more. And we ask it in the person of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're new uh, this morning, you normally don't get a double dose of me. This is not this is not usual. Daryl's our lead pastor and he he uh, week in and week out uh, walks us through the Word of God in a tremendous way. So I invite you to come back uh, and listen to Daryl. But this morning you get a double portion of yours truly. I think think my favorite one-liner, out of all the movies I've seen, all the plays that I've read, I think my favorite one-liner comes from the character Maximus in the movie Gladiator. You guys seen that movie, some of you? Some of you are like, no, if it's not on TBN, I haven't seen it. Well, I've seen the movie. It's a great movie. The scene is um, is where Joaquin Phoenix, um, well, that guy's just really turned out to be kind of bizarre, hasn't he? I'm I'm already off. I'm already off there. I'm already just out there squirting around. Sorry. Commodus is his name in the movie. Caesar Commodus. For the second time, he goes and confronts Maximus, the guy, uh, Russell Crowe, right, plays Maximus. And he confronts him on the Colosseum floor, and he just says some abhorrent things about Maximus's wife and son, who had, who had previously, earlier in the movie, had been, had been murdered. Now, there's a lot of history, needless to say, between the two characters, so it really intensifies the scene, okay, when, when Maximus starts lipping off about his son and daughter. Um, but Maximus responds with these words, The time for honoring yourself. Will soon be at an end. Man, I was like, what? Because I was thinking, what is he going to say to that? And you know what I immediately thought of? I thought of Philippians chapter 2, 9, 10, 11. I don't normally, my mind doesn't normally, I don't, you know, watching R rated movies and then I'm always thinking about scripture. I don't want you to get that impression of me. But the confession that, that the time for honoring ourselves 
will soon be at an end. And God alone will be exalted in the universal confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. In keeping with one of Daryl's primary objectives in walking through the book of Philippians, I'm going to share some of my personal experiences with wrestling with this text. And uh, uh, my hope is that it will give you even more perspective on how you can read and study and meditate on the Word of God. I know you've heard Daryl say it many times, and if you've heard me teach uh, more than a few times, then you probably heard me say it too, that one of the best ways to get more out of a passage of Scripture is to ask questions. In my own personal experience, many of the, many of the seminal moments that have resulted in, in my growth and love for God and His Word um, have come from this simple method of asking questions. And, and never be intimidated from asking the tough questions. There are questions that will lead us to think, what on earth? Is he trying to say, don't, don't be intimidated from asking the tough questions. Because John 16, 13 assures us that the Spirit of God guides us into all truth. Amen? So don't be intimidated to ask questions of a text. And one of my clearest lessons in this truth took place about a year and a half ago. I was actually meditating on this very passage of Scripture, and I heard this question, why the confession, Jesus is Lord? And the question it really didn't make much sense to me at first, but then I thought, oh man, that's, that's a great question. Why is the confession, Jesus is Lord, so glorifying to God the Father? If you're going to take one confession and make it the crown of, of God's glory, are you sure you want to Make it. Jesus is Lord. Let me put it another way. If you're, if you're going to have one singular declaration for the whole of creation, including angels and demons, are you sure you don't want something with a little bit more panache? Something sounds a little bit more impressive or noble or grand. I'm thinking something like the prayer of David. In 1 Chronicles 29, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, I'll read you just the first verse of his prayer. He says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. That's pretty good, right? That's pretty grand. How about that one? Or maybe let's try uh, the Song of Moses as it's recorded in Revelation 15. Great, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord? Who will not fear you and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Oh, those are good, but no. Philippians says that a name is given from the Father to the Son as a reward. And God the Father will be glorified by the confession of that name by which Jesus Christ shall be known. So how will the confession of creation that Jesus Christ is Lord be one of the crowning glories of God? 
That was the question that I heard. Well, to help us answer that question, we want to make sure that we're reading the text correctly in other ways, right? I'll be honest with you. I've always struggled with this passage on a small scale for at least three reasons. The first reason is if if the name that Paul is talking about here is Jesus, how is the name Jesus above every other name? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people throughout history, throughout the world, have been named Jesus. There's even an entire book of the Old Testament named Joshua. And Jesus, as many of you know, is simply the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name, Joshua. The name means the Lord saves. So if the name is Jesus... Can that name be above every other name? Well, yes and no. (laughs) Yes. I think most of us instinctively know how to answer the question because sometimes a word or name defines more than just itself. Right? Its true meaning is defined by the thing to which it actually refers. Take, for example, the phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword. Are there any men here or women would like to go to a sword fight with a pen? No. Is this true? No, it's, it's not true. Unless by pen, we mean the ideas and the philosophies that govern the sword, which stands for military might. The statement becomes true by an instance of a, a rhetorical device. It's called a metonymy. Now, that's not a fancy theological word. That's actually a fancy English grammar word. And for those of you taking notes, it's spelled M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y, metonymy. And one of the most popular contemporary uses of a metonymy is the phrase, his name or your name or their name is mud. You've heard that expression, right? Now, mud has a whole other history behind it. But what does the word name refer to here? It refers to a reputation. So as we, as we look across the, the, the pages of Scripture, it is clear that the metonymy is God's favorite figure of speech. They are everywhere in the Bible. And can you guess for what purpose he employs its use most often? It's for the word name. So when we read things like, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, yet he saved them for his name's sake. I acted for the sake of my name or help us, O God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. We shouldn't believe that God is speaking about a literal two or three syllable word here. Um, As if the personal pronouns he uses to identify himself um, are bigger than he is. Again, the worth of a name is measured by the worth of the object that it names. In all of these instances that we just read, the word name refers to God himself and his reputation. Perhaps the most popular use of this rhetorical device is is in the Bible, seen in Acts 4 and verse 12. It says this. Peter says, There is no other name under heaven by which... We must be saved. Now, is the name, is it the name Jesus that saves? 
Well, no, not unless by name Peter means the real historical person known by that name. And that is exactly what Peter means. In fact, the first part of the verse does the interpreting for us. It says, and there is salvation in no one else. Indicating clearly that the name is speaking to a person. Regarding our text in Philippians, John Calvin put it rather bluntly. This is what he says. But worse than ridiculous is the conduct of the Pope's seminarians who infer from the passage before us that we ought to bow the knee whenever the name of Jesus is pronounced as though it were a magic word which had all virtue included in the sound and pronunciation of it. Paul, on the other hand, speaks of the honor that is to be rendered to the Son of God, not to mere syllables. So for clarity's sake, let me say again, Jesus is the name. Jesus is the name by which we're saved and by which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. If by the word name we mean the historical person born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, rose to life three days later, is exalted, and evermore lives. If that's what he means by name, then yeah, we're saved by the name Jesus. Right. So, we haven't actually concluded that Jesus is the name. Okay, let's be clear. We've only answered how the name Jesus could be considered above every other name when there are thousands of people around the world and throughout history called Jesus, right? However, there are two other greater difficulties I had in understanding Jesus to be the name that Paul is referring to here. The first is that Christ was given the name Jesus before he was even born. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. So Matthew clearly teaches us that Christ was actually given the name before his time on earth even began. So if the name in our Philippians text is Jesus, then why does Paul say that Christ was given the name after His time on earth. How is giving someone what they already have a reward? Well, I submit to you that it's not. It would be nonsense. The final difficulty I had is found in the same passage of Matthew. I left it out of my first reading. So let me read it to you again. And I think you can see it up here. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The reason Matthew says that Christ was given the name Jesus was because he would save his people from their sin. Not because he humbled himself, not because he would someday humble himself, but because he would save his people from their sins. And I don't think that we should believe that God is trying to squeeze a two for one out of the name of Jesus here. Okay. But some might say, well, it appears that the name, that the name is Jesus because Paul says immediately following that at the name of Jesus, right? Every knee will bow. You want to look at, look at it with me again. So I want to be clear on this. 
This is important now, at least to what I'm saying. Verse 9, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. So some might say it appears that Jesus is the name because Paul says immediately following, but if we, if we exercise our understanding right, of God's tireless use of metonymies, we can easily see that not only is it not necessary to interpret the verse in this way, in light of all that we've seen so far, the only fair way to interpret what Paul is saying is that at the person of Jesus, every knee will bow. In other words, when Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, he's not naming the name. Are you with me? Paul's not naming the name there. He's not saying that Jesus is the name. He's saying that Jesus is the person who is named the name. Okay? I know it's a little bit of a who's on first here, isn't it? With all this. But, but I want you to see it. Paul is, what he's saying is, at the person of Jesus is what he's saying. So, if Jesus is not the name that Paul is referring to in our text, what is? Well, we've got to do a little bit more digging. Let's look at two of the primary names that God gives to himself in the Old Testament. Okay? One is translated Lord, spelled with just a capital L, and then a lowercase o-r-d. The other is translated Lord, and it's spelled in all caps. It's actually... It's not all, it's like capital L, small capital O-R-D. Okay? So in almost all of your English translations, if you look in the Old Testament, you'll now understand why sometimes Lord is spelled with or without all caps. Okay? The difference is between the two Hebrew names for which it is being used, Adonai and Yahweh. Okay? With me so far? When you see the name, and it's spelled with only a capital L, it is the name Adonai. Now, Adonai is the most exalted title given to God in the Old Testament. It represents his position as absolute ruler and master. When you see the name Lord, spelled in all caps, it is the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the sacred ineffable name of God. Perhaps the closest transliteration of that name is I am, or I am what I am, or I am being what I am being. So I want you to see, I want you to see these two words in action. So if you've got Isaiah 6, we can turn there together. And let's walk through this for just a minute. And, and we'll just read with me. I'll just read the first three verses, okay? In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, let me reread a little portion of that, just so you're with me. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, and he was lofty and exalted. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full 
of his glory. So what name do you suppose Isaiah would use to describe a being that he sees sitting on a heavenly throne, high and exalted? Isn't it fair to expect him to use the name Adonai? The name which describes his authority and his position as ruler. And so he does in verse 1. Look at the spelling, just a capital L. I saw the Lord lofty and exalted. What name do you suppose Isaiah would use to describe the personal act of God filling the earth with his glory? I think it's fair to expect him to use the name Yahweh, which is the relational name of God. And so he does. In verse 3, you can see it right there in all caps. So, now, let's read our verses again and see if we can draw any conclusions. One more time, 9, 10, and 11. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, so that at the person of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Read it once more. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord is the name. So when, when Jesus is said to have the name above every name, it is not technically Jesus that Paul is talking about. It is the Greek equivalent of Adonai. It is Lord. Not only is, the, is this confirmed within the context of these few verses, it is confirmed within the context of the entire passage. Look, look at what Paul has told us. Okay, just look. Christ has willingly humbled himself to the lowest kind of suffering and death. So what kind of name, which is a metonymy, for what kind of authority and position and power and title should we expect him to receive as a reward? It is the highest and most exalted kind. And so the Father does. He bestows on him the name Lord. Curios, Adonai. If this is the proper understanding of our text, not only should the context of the few verses around it confirm it, and not only should the fuller chapter and book context confirm it, but the rest of Scripture should seem to confirm it as well. So let's count our Isaiah passage as one example, okay? And let's just look at a few more. And I'm just going to read through four more. Just so you can see. And, and there, are, there are tens and tens. But these are some that I saw. In Revelation 19.16. It is the name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. 1 Corinthians 12.3 reveals the truth. that this, this is, I want you to get this. This is no less than the first Trinitarian confession of the church. And why do I say that? Because First uh, uh, Corinthians 12:3 says, "No one can say Jesus is Lord except by who, the Holy Spirit." This is the first Trinitarian confession of the Church. In fact, most scholars believe that this hymn, beginning in verse five and going through eleven, was one of the first hymns of the Church. 
In Romans 10.9, it is no less than the confession of salvation. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, if, you, if, you're, a, if you're kind of a, a person who likes to jot notes in their Bible, I am. I've got a, a good margin here. Um, I, want you to, um, I want you to jot this verse down, Acts 2.36, <coughs> and put it down. Maybe circle Lord in verse 11 or just circle verse 11 and then draw a little arrow out is what, is what I do. And, and then put a little CF for cross-reference. So later when you read it, you can, you can look at this again. And let me read to you what it says. Acts 2.36 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ. Who has he made Lord? This Jesus whom you crucified. Personally, I think, I think this confession has lost its punch because the Greek and the English word Lord have so many different uses, right? I mean, admittedly, even, even throughout the New Testament, the word Lord, or the word curiosity is used for lesser means. But it should be really, I think, abundantly clear that within any context with the confession that Jesus is Lord is a confession that Jesus is God. Now, I feel, I feel it's only fair to bring something up that may seem contradictory to what we've said so far. That's only fair, right? When I, I mean, if I find something, I'm like, I'm just not going to mention it, and then they'll just think I, everything I said was right. <laughs> I don't want to be like that. So I want to I point out some, something, the only thing that I could find that, that might cause you trouble if you were to come upon it. Now, I've lost my page. Where is it? Okay. So here it is. Uh, We can best see it in Luke 2, verse 11. It says this. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Our question should be, if Christ was Lord at his birth, which we believe he was, how can the Father give to Christ something that he already has? Right? This is... This, in essence, is the same question we ask about Jesus. If he was given the name Jesus before he was born, well, then it doesn't make any sense (laughs) for Paul to say he's given the name because he was obedient unto death. But it actually sounds more similar than it actually is because the name Jesus does not represent a position. It means something. It means the Lord saves, right? But Jesus is a mark of identification. It is a personal moniker. Lord, on the other hand, it's not only a mark of identification. It is also a position and and a power and an, an authority. And this difference helps us to explain how Christ can be Lord at his birth and still be given the name Lord as a reward. It's because there is a common theological expression for things that are already true, right, but not yet fully actualized. Does that make sense? You may, it's commonly heard as the now and not yet or the already and not yet. So here's how this applies to our situation in this text. We know that the absolute unchanging truth is that Jesus is and always has been Lord, right? Even as a helpless babe, right? We know that to be true. But practically speaking, God mercifully 
has not made the world entirely subject to this truth. What our passage is teaching us is that God the Son, in some way, He surrendered His practical rights to His Lordship, right? Isn't that what our text says? That He emptied Himself. And because of this and His subsequent perfect obedience, God the Father gives back to God the Son those practical rights and authorities which were always His. Okay? Now, I want you to take a look, before we go any further, at one more. To me, this is an amazing passage as it relates to our text. So again, if you're a person who jots, jot this down just right underneath Acts, and it'll be Psalm 110, and it'll be just one verse, verse 1. And here's what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So while it's true that God is always in a position of authority, right? There's no argument there. I mean, he's always, he is always reigning supreme and sovereign. But the word until here implies that the subjection of God's enemies is being perfected. It's not practically fleshed out. So this is exactly what we're talking about. But I want, to see, I want you to see something else that is pretty amazing. The Lord, all caps, Yahweh, says to my Lord, capital L, Adonai, sit at my feet until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So how has all of this helped us? Preston, right? (laughs) Why didn't you just say, Jesus is not the name, people. Lord is the name. Well, that wouldn't have been any fun at all, would it? And hopefully, some of you would have had a problem with me saying something like that and then offering no biblical... uh, you know, biblical foundation for, for saying it. But more importantly, I am fully persuaded that this sort of exercise has value in itself. It's its own reward. I realize that this has been um, more academically practical than spiritually practical, but to have a fuller understanding of God's Word on a literary or a grammatical level has tremendous value in itself. And I shared some of this thinking with Robin earlier in the week. And first thing she said was, well, that should actually give the understanding of praying in the name of Jesus a richer meaning. Right, I think she's right. So what about the question that actually started all of this off in the first place? The question was, how is the confession that Jesus is Lord? Lord being the name. How is that confession so glorifying to God? How is it going to be the crown jewel of God's glory? Well, I'll be honest with you, it's a, it's a year and a half later from when I first heard the question. And I, I feel like there's still more to the answer. Like, I, I know I've heard some great stuff, but I think there's even more there. But let me tell you what I've heard so far. Fundamentally, 
I think I've read this passage wrong for years. To my vindictive ear, it sounded like this was finally when God gets even. Right? You guys ever feel like that? Like, yeah, you wait. (laughs) It's come a day and you'll be bowing your knee, you know. As if making everyone say, Jesus is Lord, is God's great cosmic, I told you so. But I told you so is really, they're not really God's bag. In fact, to think of it this way actually violates the context of the entire passage. Should we suppose that God the Son humbled himself so that in the end he could dump the biggest I told you so anyone's ever heard? Thinking of it like this actually makes the I told you so bigger than the confession. As if the main purpose was meant to humiliate everyone who didn't at first believe it. But that's not the purpose of the confession that Jesus is Lord. The purposes of God are always positive, not negative. The purpose is to glorify God the Father. That's what our text says. To the glory of God the Father. God wouldn't be God if his main purposes were to bring others down, is what I'm saying. Right? In other words, while his main purpose of glorifying himself, which is the main purpose of God, to to exalt himself, If that's the main purpose, then it may bring others down as a result of that, right? Which is a negative. But that's just an outworking of the positive, which is the exaltation of God. That's what I mean when I say that everything that God does is a positive, not a negative. So, this confession can't be just a giant, I told you so. So, I'll give you what I think. The truth, the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord is so glorifying to God because Jesus is God's peculiar mark of glory. Let me say it, let me say it one more time. That's what I think. I think that the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is so glorifying to God because Jesus is God's peculiar mark of glory. Jesus, who is fully God, he's not just he's not just one expression of God. He is totally and completely God. Is also the greatest singular expression of God's humility. Jesus is the expression of God's humility. And God's humility is his peculiar mark of glory. God could not have saved us any other way but through his humility. It would have been impossible for God to become a man and simultaneously claim that it was an act of lordship. For an infinite being to confine himself as a finite being is by, ne- is by definition the greatest act of self-humiliation ever. Creation's final confession. It is an overdue recognition of God's unimaginable, humble greatness. 
but it is also no less a confession of God's love and God's justice, his mercy and his wrath, his kindness and his holiness. Jesus, his Lord, leaves nothing left unsaid in confessing the glories of God. All the prayers, all the confessions and songs declaring his greatness and majesty and power and beauty, they're not left unsaid or unsung. They are consummated in the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you have not made the saving confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, can I just implore you now, right now, while that confession still holds the sure hope of salvation. Make the confession now. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me?